Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. In this episode, Destin Daniel Cretton takes us behind the scenes of his new drama, Just Mercy. Based on a true story, the film follows young lawyer Brian Stevenson's efforts to overturn the murder conviction of Walter McMillian, who was sentenced to die for the murder of an 18-year-old girl, despite ample evidence proving his innocence. In addition to Just Mercy, Mr. Cretton's directorial credits include the feature films The Glass Castle, Short Term 12, and I'm Not a Hipster. The documentaries Drachmar, A Vassal's Journey, and Born Without Arms, and the television series Scenes for Minors. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Cretton spoke with director Anna Bowden about filming Just Mercy. Listen on for their spoiler filled conversation. Thanks for coming, everybody. Yeah, thank you. And thank you, Destin, for making such an awesome movie. Um, I just want to start by saying, like, it's beautiful. I loved it so much. Um, and I'm just really pleased to be here to talk to you about it. Little known fact, Anna was my um, mentor um, during the writing of Short Term 12, uh, my, my second feature, when I was at a lab out in the Hamptons. That's true. And I was like, I read the script and I was like, you don't need me. <laughs> and then I saw the movie. It was like just a couple of years later, right? That yeah. the film came out. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, blew me away. Blew me away. As did this one. Um, do you just want to start by talking a little bit about kind of how you came, when and how you came to the story or how it came to you or? Uh, the the book Just Mercy came to me through our producer Gil Netter, and I I read it actually at a coffee shop here in L.A. called the Bourgeois Pig, and I stayed there way too long because I couldn't put it down, and it was it made it made me cry, it made me laugh, and by by the end of it, I would I you know I honestly was expecting to feel kind of depressed about the world um but by the end of it i felt so connected and inspired and it's just brian stevenson's voice somehow takes you into the darkness of humanity but simultaneously opens your eyes to the beauty of of humans and what they can do for each other and it was uh something that i i just felt like i, w I would be very honored to be a part of and what, was it his voice primarily that drew you to it, or was there another character or the world? What was it? It, it is Brian's voice and the lens that he sees the world through is um, a, a very special. He he just has a very special visit, vision for human beings. He and. And it's my favorite, my favorite types of stories are the ones that start with characters who seem, who you think you get. Um, and, and then as the layers peel off, you start to realize how complicated they are. And that's really what Brian's entire 
job is. He's a, he's a storyteller in a courtroom, and he he starts with somebody who has the crimes, and he and he starts with you know the stereotype and the mugshot and the one line of what they did. Um, but his job in that courtroom is to reveal to the judge or the jury the, the full backstory of this person, um, what their childhood was like, what what specific circumstances they were in um, that got them into this crime, or sometimes didn't get them into that crime because they're completely innocent. Um, but e- either way, he's he's such a... a a gracious man that I mean, when I, when I met him, I, I could, I could feel that he, he just has no judgment about him. He's, he's constantly looking at humans kind of as a whole. And when was that? When was the first time you read the book or? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it was like, it was the year that it came out. Um, I'm not sure. A few years ago? <laughs> yeah. It was, it was, do we know? 2014? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was shortly after that I met Brian. He was, on, he was on a book tour out here in L.A. And when I met him, um, you know, it, it, it felt like I was, I was going to meet a hero of mine. And he surprisingly had seen Short Term 12 and was talking to me about about the way that I, that those characters developed throughout the movie and what he connected with, why he connected to that movie, um, and how he would love for me to be involved with this, and that was just like a huge, pretty huge honor. That's amazing. Um, and you talk about the way that he sees the people who he works with and kind of peels back their layers and. With him as a character in your story, did you find that part of your job was to do that with him, I guess, in a way? Yeah, that, I mean, it, it, it is, that, that was, you know, anytime you're, you're taking on a main character, it's, as a storyteller, you're trying to, you're trying to find the, the, the dirt or the core of who they are or the, or the, you know the flaw or the weakness, and honestly, it's really hard to do that with Brian Stevenson. Um, you you talk to anybody who's ever worked with him for a long time, and most of his employees have worked with him for thirty years, and he really is the person that that he um, that you know these quotes of his uh, uh, are are his life, and his work is his life, and. Um, he, he's one of the most genuine, kind, strategic, smart, um, people that I, I've ever met. Um, but like the, the core of, of what we, what we found is really something that I really connected to as a character, which is somebody who naively wants to change the world. Um, a young person who is just jumping into this problem without fully understanding the complexities of it. And that definitely was um, uh, the the core of, of something that Brian Stevenson related to as a young man when he, when he was jumping into this. He didn't quite know how big it was. But I think that that fearlessness that comes with youth allowed him to just jump in and 
he never stopped and he's still doing the same work that he did back in the late 80s early 90s um now with a much bigger team and he's he really has transformed this nation in so many ways while still there's so much more work to do um you know i whenever there's like a i'm presented with a true story a historical work and particularly um portraying somebody who's still alive i find it completely um terrifying <laughs> because you know as as a filmmaker storyteller it's like you you're wanting to um structure or change or work something the way that you want to work it for your storytelling and um and like striking that balance between being true and accurate and authentic uh but also telling a story i mean did did you find that a challenge with this and how yeah it was hard um andrew lanham and i uh, adapted the book together and i mean it it's challenging be you know because our our subject um we 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 forced ourselves to be very close to brian stevenson throughout the entire process because we wanted it to be accurate and there were but he's also a very smart storyteller so you know when it came to certain time shifts or moving moving something in a slightly different order than it was, than it actually happened um Brian would was very supportive and understanding of those things um but when it came to the accuracy of the characters and the scenes he rightly so was extremely strict and it, it was but constraints are, as a storyteller constraints are always really empowering in a way otherwise you can just go off into in, into any direction and i think it helped us to to hone in on on a very specific story that was able to you know he was able to screen it to Walter McMillan's family and and they were you know everybody saw themselves on on the screen which was kind of our 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 hope it's incredible um one one of the sequences that um that for me was just you know one of the most moving and just artfully done um i was totally blown away by it was um herbert is that his name sorry um his you know death sequence was incredible um and you know partly because you know i want to hear kind of how you thought about structuring it and how you know you developed it from from the beginning but also part of you know what's so amazing about it is that it works it functions so much as like this turning point for the character a really important emotional turning point for Brian but also kind of propels the plot forward in a certain way because it does you know give him um a new perspective that helps him break Walter's case a little bit. Um and I mean is that something that was uh you know clear to you from the beginning the way that it would function dramatically clear from the beginning or is it something you discovered in the writing? It was um Herbert's execution story-wise it was something that early on we 
I mean, we knew how powerful that was in the book. It's such a, it was the first execution that Brian witnessed. Um, and he, I mean, we, we, what you saw is very, is, is what he experienced and it was extremely moving. And, um, one of the things that actually wasn't in the book was a little detail that, that really hit me. I was, I was interviewing Anthony Ray Hinton, who is, is played by O'Shea Jackson in the movie. And I was interviewing him, um, Andrew and I were interviewing him, and in the interview we were asking, because he had a, while he was there, he was on death row for 30 years, and while he was there, he experienced so, so many of his friends being executed, and we knew about the the banging the cups on the bars, which were, which Brian talks about in the book, and I just assumed that it was a sign of protest, um, and and when when so we asked him about that and anthony's or anthony ray hinton said oh that that was less about protest it was more about us letting our 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 boy know that we're with him we wanted him to them to hear that they're not going through this alone and when when he told me that i was like oh man cuz the i didn't really f- fully realize the depth of the camaraderie and the friendship and the love between those those guys and so that that little bit of information transformed that that whole sequence to me made it bearable it made it it's not about watching somebody die it's about watching the love between these people and how they're all affected by this and um that's that's also why we you know, we chose to play that, that song, the song that plays there is the song that, that Herbert Richardson chose to, to walk, um, to walk to his, his execution with. And we, we chose to play it all the way through till his, till his death, because, you know, in, in, in our minds, that's like the song that he was probably playing in his head throughout. Um, it was a, a really, difficult sequence to emotionally di- difficult for all of us to go through um, because we had people on set who were very, very close to the actual man. And we, we also had a, an, a former executioner on set who had since, um, is, had since kind of become an advocate against the death penalty, but he was there on set to walk us through every little detail of how they would do it so that we could um, show how the straps were done and show. And, and so we, we, we kind of mapped it all out before um, Rob Morgan even stepped into that execution chamber. Rob Morgan plays Herbert Richardson and we had of all of our guards kind of work through the whole routine. And so for the, the first time that, that Rob Morgan actually came into that that chamber and saw the chair for the first time. We were rolling on him, so so he experienced it all while we while we were shooting. It's so so effective, and um, like the moment that I realized what was happening with the with the music, basically that they were making, and realizing that 
Herbert was going to be able to hear that is just like chills, you know. I mean, it was it really effectively kind of did exactly what you're talking about, which made the scene about so much more the camaraderie and the love than, um, I guess, about the pain of yeah. the death. Yeah. Um, I could. Um, I'm like so curious and could keep asking you questions about <laughs> the real story and, and all of that, but I also really want to get to kind of um, hear about how you approach working with actors. I mean, you clearly, from all your films, you work with incredible actors, but also get such amazing, you know, performances, um, transcendent performances, and that it, you must kind of create a certain space for them um, that really allows them to do their best work and wondering how you approach that, kind of creating that space. And um, I, uh, it's, uh, I think, I mean, I, I, I just kind of guess whenever I talk about how I work with actors because I don't know, like, every actor is so different. And when, when, I, when I start, like, filing through every actor that I work with, my, my directing is different for every actor. And I start, anytime I'm working with a new actor, I ask them what, like, what pisses them off about how other people have directed them, what gets under their skin, and then I'm like, don't do that, don't do that. Um, and then I ask them what's helpful to them. Um, I know some some actors uh, don't like to be directed on the first take. They want to just come out and do something, and um, and I'm totally game for that. Like so, I, so, Some actors, I just don't say anything. We just start with whatever they're going to throw out there. And then we start saying, oh, that worked, that worked. Um, uh, some actors like to, some actors like to do three in a row, and I'll just be like, okay, let's do three in a row. And then we do three in a row, and then we talk about it. Um, but I, I, I just, I actually, the first time I ever directed something, I was so afraid to work with a real actor. And I had, it was because I looked at all the directors that that actor had worked with before me, and I thought, they're going to know that I have no idea what I'm doing. And so I, I got this book that had um, all these directors talking about how they direct, and it had Scorsese and Spielberg and... Um, all you know, all the greats, and I read this book, and by the end of it, I was just so confused because <laughs> every director did everything so differently. Um, so now, I mean, the only thing I can the, the, this is how I define direct directing actors is like you you will direct an actor the way that you talk to your friends or just normal people and specifically the way that you deal with conflict um if if i mean some some people are really agitated and conflict comes up and it's like um other people speak to 
and you and you speak differently to certain friends. You speak and you understand what their insecurities are, so you know, like, oh, don't go there, don't say that. And I I feel like that that typically is what what directing is. And for me, the bottom line is like everybody is scared. I think typically actors are rightly scared because their faces on a screen that that's that's that big and they don't know you and you're the one choosing which take is going to go up there and for me it's you want an actor who's going to trust you enough to give bad takes like they're not going to they're going to trust you that you're not going to choose the thing that sucks because once they're there, then they're they're open and free enough to take risks and chances, and you only need one. And to me, like some of the best actors give you like nine shit takes and one amazing one, um, and and it's just because they're just like ah, they just go. Um, and so I don't know. Um, have you have you ever worked with an actor who? doesn't do that, who is very practiced and has a way that they're coming in to do a performance and knows what they want to do and is kind of like if you do three takes in a row, it's going to be very close to the same three times and then you want to shake it up or you're, um, have you ever been in a situation where you need to push them to get up? Yeah, I mean, typically like it feels like that on day one, two, three until you like, until you come up with what your language is because there's always testing going on the first couple of days before uh, before an actor starts to trust you um and i mean i've definitely had to typically a lot of times it's day it's day play actors because and i and i I feel for them because they're coming into a situation and they don't have time to even like understand what to build rapport with me or uh, but there's been scenes where I, we've had to just stop early for lunch and then I've had to go and talk to them and and try to figure out something to get them out of this this rehearsed thing that they've been practicing over and over and over. Um, but I don't know. I usually find with act with with actors who are who have been doing this for a while that they love freedom when they can get it um and so they 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 love to loosen up when they when they are are being told that they can and how about when you're shooting a scene and it's not working and you don't know exactly why it's not specifically that an actor is not bringing a certain thing or you you know for just some reason it's not gelling, how do you approach that? How do you reset or get out of that mode and figure out how to make it sing? Oh, I don't know. Just shoot a lot and hope that there's something in there. <laughs> um, um, there's, yeah, you, you, there is a, sometimes there's a moment when you're at the monitor or wherever you sit when you're directing and a, and a scene isn't really like jiving and your heart starts thumping and you're like, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? I don't even know what to, um, and sometimes it's really hard to put your finger on it. Um, I, I, I do think 
part of your job as a director is just to shake things up and there you don't have to know the right thing to say sometimes but if something's not working it, it it's you could you could I don't know. You could take off your clothes and run around, and that would shake things up. It would just like create like a. I would not recommend doing that. But there, have you ever tried? I would no. I wouldn't. Uh, that's not. That's not my style. Um, but there's no. I mean, actors are const are are constantly being um, affected by whatever is happening in the room. So sometimes. I I like the let's just do three in a row, and I like the okay just do something completely different, and together we're just kind of searching. We're record we're recording it all, but together we're just searching for something. And I think if your actors trust you in that, then it, it kind of feels like play, mm-hmm. and and they'll try something that doesn't quite work but then if you do three in a row sometimes there's like a couple a couple new things come out that you can talk about oh that felt good oh maybe we don't need this line this line is the thing that's screwing with us either just lose it or change it um yeah i don't i don't know (laughs) um and you've you worked with like a, a bunch of the same key crew on several of your movies, right? I mean, your your DP has been the same at least for um, you know Short yeah. Two Twelve, Glass Castle, yeah. this one. Um, and do you do you find that really important to you having that kind of the people who you've I guess grown up learning how to make movies with in a way um, to have them there on set with you. Yeah, I mean my my I've worked with the same people since I mean, Brett Pollock, my my DP, shot my thesis film, my short film um, out at uh, in in film school, and we've done everything together. Um, my same composer, edit, editor, my sister did all, uh, has been doing costumes for me since the beginning. I mean, film sets are, can, can just make you kind of crazy sometimes. Uh, they get so intense and it's really, I, I grew up on an island in the middle of the Pacific and I have a low threshold for, uh, for, stress and so it's helpful to to surround myself with people who ground me and remind me of the very real fact that we are only playing make-believe um as intense as it feels um and it's nice to have people that that around me that that help create that environment on set that don't um take a stressful situation and amplify it by 10 because it's usually not necessary. Um, the people that help remind everybody to like laugh through our stress, which I think is very important and hard for me to do. So I surround myself with people who, who help with that. They also all happen to be very good at what they do. So, um, that's, that's also why I am always wanting to work with them. 
And how did you collaborate with Brett on this film to come up with kind of your visual language that you were going to be using? Um, did you have any specific references or reference points? We, um, I mean, Brett, Brett and I are constantly just feeling the vibe of the actors um, and trying to come up with a way to shoot a scene based on what what we feel like they would would benefit them in that scene. And for specifically this movie, that was always the the first conversation. Um, which, you know, for for the three when you see those three guys um in an, in their cell rooms talking to each other um we we knew we wanted that to to be very loose and we wanted them to be able to to improvise or go off script if they wanted to so we we had three cameras set up on each of on each of them in each of their cells um and we ran them simultaneously so so that they could have all those conversations um, just like they would if they were in cell uh, on death row, and that was—I mean—it was one of the more interesting things that I learned from Anthony Ray Hinton was that he would he would often have friendships with people that he'd never seen their faces, but he knew he knew their voices because they would be shouting from cell from one cell down to the others, and um, it was it was cool to see. I mean, we just set up those three. They knew what the lines were, and they would just they they would do the scene. Then they would start improvising, and they'd go off for like two, three minutes on just random tangents. And then one of them would like start the scene again. And they just do it again, and I I just watched. It was, but it was really it was really cool to see. It's amazing. Um, the, and it the camera often feels like it's very close. It to is. your actors, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, I think part of what makes the filmmaking so powerful. Um, how important were your camera operators just in terms of that, I don't know, intimacy with the actors? They're the people who are closest to them. and Yeah, we had, I mean, our camera operators were were both very good at, the technical aspects of it, but they were also, um, you know, you have to have a camera operator that doesn't weird out your actors. <laughs> like you have to have a camera operator who is sensitive and who um, your actors feel okay with being vulnerable with when they're sometimes like a couple inches from their face. Um, for for this. Brian Stevenson's book starts off in, in one of the first chapters. He says that uh, it's something his grandma tells him, that you can't understand the most important things in life unless you allow yourself to get very close to it. And we that was, that was something that Brett and I talked about from the very beginning, was um, just creating an aesthetic that allowed audiences to get closer and closer to these subjects to where in these certain intimate moments like one, whether that's the moment of Herbert Richardson just before just before he passes or the moment that that um, Walter McMillan is trying to talk Herbert down from a, from a, um, 
a panic attack that we would we would take the audience literally as close as we possibly could to those faces um because that's something that I think Brian hopes that this movie can do along with his book is allow people to get closer to a subject that we've all heard about and we've all read about. We know the statistics, but, uh, you know, we, we hope this movie allows you to get close to it in a different way through these characters who I, th I think are very easy to relate to and to see that they could be one of, one of us. Thank you. I think that's um, a really nice place to end it. And, um, you know, thanks so much for the film, Destin. And thank you guys for coming. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned for more great Q&As with directors Matthew Diop and Pedro Amoldovar. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 